John chapter 12, verse 37 through 43. I'm not sure if many of you heard of this man. His name was uh, David, David Flood. And this is David and Svi Flood. Uh, he was a, a Swedish man who committed his life to Jesus Christ in his youth. He married a young woman named Svi, I think that's how you pronounce it, who shared in this commitment to Christ. So they, belt, they both felt called to serve the Lord in Africa and arrived on those distant shores with their two-year-old son in 1921. With all their hearts, they wanted to bear fruit and work among a people who have never heard the gospel. They were so excited. As it turned out, the work was extremely difficult. The conditions were absolutely horrible, and the people were very, very hostile and unresponsive. Their lives were in constant danger. The floods during this time, in those conditions, had two children. Shortly after the second child was born, Sve died. David was already consumed by doubts and discouraged by the lack of results that he was seeing. And at this point, when she died, he was absolutely devastated. All his efforts, all that time, all the energy, all the sacrifice, all he had to show was one convert, one little boy. Consumed by doubts, discouraged by the lack of results, he left. He had sacrificed his wife, his best years of his life, for what? He said he was a fool for bringing her to this hostile and cruel situation. It was under that cloud of defeat and failure <clears throat> he gave up. He decided to leave Africa, and he took his young son with him. However, he had a daughter. She was sick at the time, and she was too ill to travel, and he had to leave her behind. Missionary couple took her in. She was passed to another missionary couple later on, and she was raised in America. Meantime, David went back to Sweden, and he turned his back on the faith. What do we do? What do we do when we believe that God has called us to a ministry? What do we do when we have been faithful year after year, witnessing to individuals, trying to preach the gospel, trying to reach a community, and it seems as if God has forgotten all about us. And there is absolutely no results whatsoever. Maybe you've been in that position. Maybe you feel like God's called you to a ministry. Maybe we're thinking that as a church right now, right? We're doing outreach events. We've been trying, haven't we? Aren't we trying to get the gospel out there? Aren't we trying to make inroads in this community? 
What do we have to show for it? Maybe you've been witnessing to an individual. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a, a parent that you're witnessing to over and over and over again, and you just feel like you are talking to a wall. Maybe we'll end up like our friend David Flood. Maybe we wouldn't take it that far. But maybe we're, we just want to say, you know what? This whole witnessing thing, this whole evangelist, I'm just giving up. No one is believing. Why do I keep doing? Why do I keep trying if no one is believing? And then, even worse, we could start to do what? We can blame ourselves, can't we? And we can think that we are failures. And what happens is we begin to try harder and we say, maybe I'm not smart enough. Maybe I need to, maybe I need to take the next Bible class. Maybe I need to take an apologetics course. Maybe I need to be more polished in my speaking. Maybe I need to find better arguments or even worse, maybe our church just needs to kind of let go of some truths that are kind of uncomfortable for the culture. Maybe we need to be a little bit more attractive, right? Maybe I need to start, I don't know, setting myself on fire up here and drawing attention. And maybe we need to compromise the gospel, make it more palatable. Those are all the things that can happen. What do we do when we find ourselves as a body of believers ministering in an area of widespread gospel rejection? We pack up? Do we move? We throw in the towel? Right now, research says that Christianity is on a rapid decline. So much so it's causing a cultural upheaval. And during most crises in the past, during most of the the trials that Americans have faced, those things have drawn people to God. Guess what the pandemic did? Uh Uh-uh. Just pushed them away. What do we do when no one believes? We're going to look at a summary today. So there's two summaries within the rest of this uh, chapter, chapter 12. There's a summary given to us by John, And then there's a summary given to us by Jesus. Jesus has ended his public ministry. John gives a summary of the results of that public ministry. And if you and I were to look at his ministry, his public ministry to the nation of Israel from a worldly perspective, guess what? It looks like Jesus just utterly failed. We're going to look at three considerations as we go through this passage today. Uh, The first consideration, and don't worry, I'm going to tell you in the beginning, this is going to end hopefully encouraging to you, but for the first couple points, you're going to be like, man, I'm just going to go jump off a bridge at this point, because just just hang in there, folks, it's going to be okay. The first consideration, many don't believe, even though, verses 37 through 38, John chapter 12 But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
There's a parable or a little story. I don't know if I shared this before. Every time I do an illustration, I'm, I, sometimes I call Sarah and I have I done this, and she'll say no, but I don't know. So I don't know if I've done this, so forgive me if I have. The customs officer, and there's a truck that's, that keeps pulling up at his little station. So pulls up at his station, and, you know, the customs officer's like, I know there's something wrong with this truck. It, you know, there's, there's something wrong with this guy. There's something wrong with this driver. So he starts searching the vehicle, pulls off the panels, the bumpers, the wheel cases, and he finds absolutely nothing. He waves the driver through. Next week, same driver arrives. He kind of picks up his, his search a little bit. Over and over and over again, day after day, this guy keeps coming through. He tries everything. He tries full body searches, x-rays, sonar, anything that he can think of. But every week, same man drives up, but no mysterious cargo ever appears. Eventually, the guy's going to quit his job. He's done. He's retired. Not quit, but retire. And he, the guy pulls up and he says, listen, I'm not going to tell anyone anything, but I know you are absolutely doing something illegal. Can you just, I can't figure out, what are you smuggling? The guy says, trucks. Trucks is smuggling trucks the whole time. Have you heard? To flip that around, have you ever been talking to people about the faith and you feel like, man, it's obvious, right? How many times have you talked to people and, and, and you're talking to them and you're trying to explain to them, look, you really believe that all of this, even, you and I talking about our existence, the sun that comes up, the moon, the trees, the sky, the birds, the animals, all of this was just an accident? Can't you see? Don't you understand? How can you not believe? Or, or maybe we go to the Bible and we say, do you know this, this book has the most manuscript evidence than any book in the entire world? Do you know that the prophecies that have been spoken of in this book, they've, they've come true? Do you know that archaeologists verify the scriptures? It all points to the fact that it's true. Do you know that five, over 500 people saw Jesus after he, he, he suffered, died, and was buried, and he rose again? What's wrong? It gets kind of frustrating, doesn't it? And we, we want to say to people, what, what's the matter? It's obvious. We think we, can, we need better arguments, we need to learn more, we need to try harder. And we think, we begin to think that we're the reason that people are not believing. Now, don't get me wrong, we, we need to study, we need, we need good apologetic arguments, we need to understand our faith. Let's look at what John says about Jesus' ministry, because it's like right before their eyes, right? And they've, they've just missed it. They, they, they're, Jesus is... Jesus is the greatest apologist of all time, is he not? But he's not just giving the best apologetic arguments. What is he doing before them? Miracles. Miracles. He's performing miracles before their eyes. Now, if I start performing miracles up here, do you think I'm, we're going to attract a, a crowd? A absolutely. Do we think that, what do we say to ourselves? God, just can you do a sign? for this individual so that they can believe? Well, what happens here? 
Jesus is performing miracles, and we know that all the miracles that he performed are not even written down. John says it would fill all the books in the world. So here we have a select few, and they're good miracles, right? Jesus heals people in front of other people. He feeds over 5,000 people with just a few loaves and fishes. That's, that's awesome. And he raises someone from the dead. Everyone knew Lazarus died, and now Lazarus is alive. Why? Because Jesus raised him from the dead. You would think at that point, oh, we got to believe in this guy. Not what John says. Well, did he fail? No. Not failing, but actually fulfilling. One important, important thing that we need to see here, you know, when John says this, he, he, even though he says so many signs, still the result was this, and the reason why it was because it was necessitated by Scripture. God has a plan. Jesus was the fulfillment of that. And that is exactly what is happening here. God predicted this would happen. And Jesus' ministry is compared with that of Isaiah's. As a matter of fact, in this case... He is fulfilling it. Even though, even though we may have the best arguments, even though we may have the best outreach events, even though I can talk to someone till I'm blue in the face, even though God can do a miracle through one of us, even though they still won't believe. As I said, Jesus' ministry here is compared with that of Isaiah, both the message, who has believed our report, and his miracles, to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed. God's arm has been revealed before the eyes of this nation, yet they refuse to believe. And, and that, that verse is taken from in the context of Isaiah 53. So we know, first and foremost, that the people did not believe in Jesus because he wasn't the Messiah they wanted. They were looking for someone radically different. But we also have to understand Isaiah's commission. And what's really, really funny sometimes about Isaiah's commission is, I, I don't know if many of you, what's the, what's the big, the big uh, conference for missions that sends people out, happens every year, someone should know it, I can't remember the name of it. Nobody, okay. Neither do I. Well, good. We're all in the same boat. So there, there's this big conference, and it would happen once, once a year, and all the, you know, people who are excited about missions. I never got to go, but I always, I always wanted to go. And, you know, you could just picture the guy up there, right, and he's telling people about these, these tribes who, who've either, you know, never heard the gospel or all these people who need to hear the gospel. And, and he uses this verse, and he's like, just like God said to Isaiah, who shall I send? And everyone's like, send me. You know, send me. That was, that was me. I, I wanted to do that. I wanted to be that guy who was going to go, you know, headhunters, whoever it was, right, and give the gospel, give my life, and, and, and bear fruit for the kingdom of God. That was my dream. That was my plan. But can you imagine the guy's up there, right, and he's stirring up all that emotion. He's like, man, we need to preach the gospel. All these lost people in the world, who's going to go? 
Send me. Okay, you know what else God told me? No one's going to believe. Let me pray about that. Yeah, no one's going to believe because that's exactly what he says to Isaiah. I want you to go to these people. I want you to tell them a message. But guess what? When you preach, the opposite is going to happen. That is what is happening in Jesus' ministry in Israel. Wow. Necessitated by Scripture. We have to understand a few things here. I have to understand a few things here. Because I'm always of the mindset that if I'm, we're not bearing fruit, if we're not seeing conversions, if we're not bringing in people, we're failing. That, that can't be the case. Now, we, we need to try our best. Absolutely. But we have to understand God has a plan. Our job isn't to be fruitful in that sense. Our job is to be faithful. And we have to know that there is a greater plan working out in our little plans that we have here. And what God has called us to may be a ministry like Isaiah's, may be a ministry like Jesus's was to Israel. Either God is fully sovereign and he is working in this world and he is in control of every aspect or he's not. And if he's not, you and I are in big trouble. We can't just be excited or faithful when things are going the way that we think they should. Jesus' ministry was like that of Isaiah's. It's fulfilling what God had predicted and necessitated that needed to happen. Brings us to our next consideration. They can't believe because... Verses 39 through 41. For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their, heart, their eyes and hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of him. There was a a minister, air quotes minister, who spoke on the sovereignty of God. This is what he said. My heart was really stirred this last month. I attended a meeting where an old friend of mine was ministering. He had been through some terrible things that nearly destroyed his faith. He became bitter and angry at God for all the things that had happened to him. When I heard him, when I saw him, he had humbled himself and was again loving the Lord and excited about the future. However, in the process, 
he had come to believe something, that the Lord was in control, was behind what had happened to him. Now listen to what he says. He had resigned himself to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Now that word resigned, he's trying to get you to feel that it's bad, right? That's what his intention is. He says, I believe that the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is the worst doctrine in the church today. I know this is a shocking statement and near blasphemy to some people, but it is a real faith killer, especially the way that it's taught. The belief that God controls everything that happens to us is one of the devil's biggest inroads into our lives. Wow. Now, I, I got to tell you, I was early on, Pastor Dave can testify to this, I was a sovereignty nut. And I would teach sovereignty of God even to the point of making my lovely wife cry at one point. So I, I, there are ways that we can teach the sovereignty of God and all of those things in a very, very negative way. But we cannot deny what is being said here. And we have, to, we have to be able to talk about it. Because we come, if, if, again, if when I go searching for sermon illustrations about a verse, and if it, it tells me what verses are being preached on the most, when I find a plethora of sermon illustrations, well, this was about as fruitless as Isaiah's ministry. Because there were... <laughs> You ain't finding, you ain't finding, they're like, what, what do I do with this one? Um, and you, you're not just not finding illustrations on this one because we're like, this is the one we're kind of uncomfortable with. We, and we're like, God, can you just go into the closet for right now? We're going to talk about something. And we, we're ashamed of God's sovereignty in salvation, and we shouldn't be. We should be proclaiming this from the rooftops. One commentator rightly points out, and it's very, very interesting, if you go to Isaiah, his calling, and if you look at 9 through 10, these are imperatives, these are commands. Isaiah is commanded to go to these people, and as he speaks, he's doing the opposite. As he speaks, God is hardening their hearts, blinding their eyes through him. Isaiah is the water, and they're the concrete mix. That's what's happening. That's what his ministry was. God, through Isaiah, through his preaching, and now through Jesus Christ, is actually a judicial hardening. It's a judgment. We often want to close our eyes to this truth. We want, to, we want to be blinded to this. Because we don't understand, and that's okay. And like I said, we have to walk with people through this. There, there's no easy way through this. We, we just have to, and, and we have to also understand, as a body of believers, we may not understand it. We, we can't comprehend it. We, how does 
How does the free will of man and the sovereignty of God work together? I have no idea. I know that it does because God tells me it does. I, I, I listened to a great sermon the other day that, about Jesus when he refers to remember Lot's wife from Sodom and Gomorrah. Guy did a great job. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah. This is one key aspect. We have to understand what is happening here to these individuals. The angels are in Sodom and Gomorrah. They're in the house and the people are surrounding the door. And what are they trying to do? They're like, Lot, bring us out those men so we can have our way with them. And Lot, since you're not bringing them out, we're going to have our way with you too. The angels reach outside the door. What do they do? They blind them all. Did they stop? You would think, oh, this is the judgment of God. Oh, wait a second. These, these are powerful beings. Oh, wait a second. We need to rethink what we're doing. No. They kept pressing forward in their sin. The people that are, all of us, are guilty from the start. These individuals in Israel are not neutral at all. Remember what Paul says in Romans? God hands them over, and we see this, this judgment, this judicial handing over. Why? Because previously he says, God's glory is displayed before their eyes every day. They wake up and they see the sun, they see the clouds, they see the birds, and they say, man, we're awesome. I think I'm going to worship us. They reject him. That's what's happening. And apart from the grace of God, folks, you and I could be in that position. Salvation is a work of God's mercy and grace. I bring nothing but my sin and rebellion to the table. Nothing at all. You know, we have to remember things when we read passages like this. God is good all the time. God is pure. God is just. We are the ones who need to answer to Him. And we need to humble ourselves before His sovereignty and say, Lord, I don't understand, but I trust You. I know what you're doing is right. And I know one day I'm going to see it more clearly. You know, we, we do this kind of in our own lives too with boundaries, don't we? We have prisons and we say to people, hey, you had your chance. You, you couldn't handle the freedom that we gave you in society. You abused that freedom. I'm sorry. We still value that person. We still... We still love that individual, but there's a boundary. We do it in our own lives. If we have people in our relationships and they're hurting us, are we going to keep being like, here you go? No, we're going to set up a boundary. And we're going to say, guess what? You can't come any further. That's a judgment. And it's a, it's a necessary judgment. 
if we do that as sinful, and I'm sinful, unjust human beings, can't God, who is all just, all holy, all pure, do it to individuals who have rejected Him? Absolutely. He knows their hearts. Secondly, we have to also understand that this rejection leads to a greater salvation. This was all part of his plan. I'll tell you what, so you read Romans. For if their rejection brought what? Reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be? This is the same idea in Romans. And I know the ladies who went through Romans chapter 11, this was a great topic. You guys loved this chapter, didn't you? This was one of your back and forth and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, how does, how does this work out? So I know you've covered this. Well, what does he say? If their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater the riches will their full inclusion bring? Their rejection led to, guess what? Our salvation, didn't it? God had a plan. God had a plan, and sometimes we have no idea how that is going to work out because you and I wouldn't be here if they didn't reject Jesus Christ. He had salvation in mind. I'm sure that we've had instances in our life where we wanted God to say yes to something, right? And we're praying, we're thinking, that's the, that's, this is it, Lord. I, I know this is your plan for my life. And he's just kept saying no. And then later on, he leads us to something 10 times better. And we're like, Lord, thanks for saying no. <laughs> How many times has that happened, right? And, and the same thing goes for when we're preaching the gospel. People may be rejecting, okay, God's got something in store and we don't know what it is yet. Our job is to be faithful, to continue to preach. And it's real important that we see how John's, what John adds here. Why Isaiah says this because he saw what? His glory. Isaiah is saying that it was a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus Christ that he saw on the throne. He knew. And I think it's real important for us to understand that when we're looking out there and we're not understanding what's going on, we need to look up there. We need to get a clear vision of who he is because when we get a clear vision of who he is, we're going to be able to do his work down here. And we're going to have the right heart. We're going to continue to be faithful even when people are constantly saying no to the gospel. We're going to allow God to be God. I told you that this would get a little bit more encouraging. The first two points were like, forget it. So third point, some do believe, but verses 42 through 43. Nevertheless, great word in this context, isn't it? Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. You're like, I thought it was going to get encouraging. Don't worry. 
We're going to focus on the positive part of that verse. I don't know if you've ever heard of this website. It's called Fake a Vacation. So fake a... I know, right? We have no idea. You don't have to... Here's their pitch, right? You don't have to pack. You don't have to deal with security lines or face jet lag in order to show off your vacation pictures on social media. Just fake it. There's a Nebraska-based business is offering to bolster social media pages with expertly faked photos of the user on vacations that they never took. The company, Fake Vacation, offers packages starting at $19.99. That's not a bad price for a service to superimpose the photos of a social media user in front of famous landmarks and at popular vacation spots, including, but not limited to, Las Vegas, the Grand Canyon, Hawaii, and here you go, Walt Disney World. The company's ad reads, make your friends envious where you were and have them thinking of being where you are. Fake a vacation is the perfect meme for bragging to your friends. The packages also include some facts in case they ask you questions later on so that you know what to say at the right time. They cited studies that show that half of millennials had lied about taking vacations for a variety of reasons, including the desire for social media recognition. I will be posting pictures of myself this, these next couple of weeks. I don't need fake a vacation because Sarah can do it. This is a picture. She, I sent this. This is Chad Pearl, pastor over at the Vineyard. I sent this to him the other day, uh, yesterday, and, and he, for like 15 minutes, he was trying to think of where we were. This is fake. Sarah photoshopped me next to him, took a picture from him. So what's the point? Not everything is as it seems, folks. And to flip it around, there are people who may be faking being unbelievers. You and I have no idea what God is doing in people's hearts. Nevertheless, so I struggled with this. This was going to be an entire sermon on unbelief, and I would just leave you with that note, and you guys would all go home and just cry. This was going to be a, a theology of unbelief, and my last point was going to be, well, they're, they're not believing, you know, because they're, you know, the social pressure. But John, and I struggled with the word, nevertheless, and I, I called folks that I trusted and talked to them, and, and yes, it, this is a contrastive word. He's telling us something. He's saying, hey, despite all of this, despite all of this unbelief, there were a few believers. And guess what? These believers were in a group of individuals that we thought, ah, there's a, that, we're not, they're not going to be believers. Of all the people, there were some in the religious ranks or the prominent individuals in the leaders of Israel, even among the leaders, the higher-ups, that believed. Wow. Nevertheless, even despite widespread rejection, there remains a remnant. And I think within the context of Isaiah, this makes sense. Because within Isaiah's ministry, there was a remnant. 
God will not leave himself without a witness. There is always a remnant. You and I have absolutely no idea what God is doing in the hearts of individuals that we think may be the furthest from the gospel. No idea. None. He could be working on their hearts right now. Now, the but is is a real but. We don't know how far this faith has gone, but we can see that even within these ranks, people started having an affection for Jesus Christ. That's a good thing. How many times have you, I've, I've done this, have you looked at people and you'd be like, they're so far from the gospel, right? I, I've done it. Or the, 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 the reverse, where I've looked at people and I've said, that guy's going to make a great Christian. And you know how, you know, that's heresy <laughs> because that means I'm looking at them. God is the one who can change absolutely anyone. He can take the hardest of hearts. He can soften that heart and make them, oh, an apostle like Paul. Who you, we, If we were to look at Paul, if Paul were here, Saul were here today, right? And he's hanging outside there and he's like, I'm going to kill you, I'm gonna throw you in jail. We'd be like, that dude, we're not going to preach the gospel to him. We're going to stay clear. And, and, and now... What, what happens? He takes him, this man who was on a mission to kill Christians, to imprison them, and made him the, one of the greatest apostles of all time. That's how God works. You and I have no idea. And right now, it seems like this world is just full of hard hearts, doesn't it? And especially within certain camps. Because certain ideologies are being put forth and we're just like, there's no way these people are going to believe. Has anyone ever heard of Rosaria Butterfield? You should look into her. Brian McDougall introduced me to her a few years back. This woman was a radical feminist professor at Syracuse University and a lesbian. completely anti-Christian. Now listen to what she's writing here. Now she is a radical evangelist for Jesus Christ. Do you know why? Because God changed her heart. And he did so through a pastor and his wife who welcomed her into their home and talked about Jesus Christ and the faith in a respectful, loving manner. Nevertheless, nevertheless, you and I have no idea. Maybe God will use you to bring the individuals who, you know, these fears of maybe they're worried about their job, maybe they're in a circle of friends that are always talking anti-Christian stuff, and they come out, they're like, man, my whole life is just, maybe they're afraid. Maybe God's going to use you to bring them out, to bring them to that point of public confession. Because we know at the end of the Gospel of John, there's two of them, right? Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Not ashamed. Not ashamed. They're part of this group Yes, I think it needs to get to the point 
of that public confession, absolutely, and, and, and we need to help people, we need to walk people through this, and we also need to understand what may be holding individuals back. Walk patiently with them through it, because it is God who changes hearts. He can take the hardest of hearts and make them so soft for Jesus Christ. He can do anything. Remember, there was another prophet. He was told to speak to a bunch of bones. They came alive, didn't they? Not because of him, but because of the God working behind him, through him. That's how God works. Maybe we're discouraged. Nobody is believing. Remember, nevertheless... Yet despite all of this, we have no idea. So what happened to David Flood? Ah, <laughs> I know. Some people, I love doing that. People are like, man, you better finish that story. And what happened to David Flood? You know, I mean, I'll just, let's hang on for a second. I'm just kidding. So, late, so the daughter later got married. Yep. Lived with her husband in America. But with all her heart, she wanted to find her father. Years later, she arranged a, a trip to Sweden. She found him. 73 years old, bedridden. <laughs> Sorry. Living in a shabby apartment, littered with liquor bottles. He had a rule. Don't mention God's name. Took everything from me, he said. Didn't stop her. She went to go see him. She said, I still love you. And God did too. He began to cry. He said to her, I never meant to give you away. She said, it's all right, Papa. God took care of me. He stiffened. The tears stopped. God? God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. He turned his face back to the wall. Undaunted, she stroked his face and continued. I got a story to tell you. It's a true one, Dad. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy... You won to the Lord, grew up to win that entire village to Jesus Christ. The one seed that you planted kept growing and growing. Today there are 600 African people serving the Lord because you were faithful to the, God, the call of God on your life. That boy grew up to be a missionary and evangelist to his own country, which now included 110,000 Christians, 32 mission stations, several Bible schools, and a 120-bed hospital. We have absolutely no idea. God's sovereignty and salvation is our hope. It's our hope amid widespread rejection. It's not a hindrance 
It's a hope. It's an understanding that he's doing something greater than we can ever imagine. That you and I have no idea of the hearts that he is going to touch. And what we feel and what we think is failure may actually just be fulfilling his greater plan. Amen? What's this call us to do? Keep being faithful. And it calls us to pray. Because if we believe in this truth, this truth brings us to our knees. And we pray to Him. And we ask Him. We ask Him, have mercy. We ask Him, soften their hearts. Use us. Use our feeble words, Lord. Grow your kingdom. Remember, when Isaiah was commissioned, he saw who? The Lord where? On his throne. He hasn't given it up since or ever at any point. God is in control. God is sovereign. And because of that, you and I can continue to be faithful. Father, Lord, so challenged through this. Help us. Help us to just have this truth set so deep in our hearts. We live every aspect of our life with this understanding, this hope that no matter what is happening around us, even when it seems like we're just failing constantly, Lord, you are doing a greater work. And Lord, we do. We pray right now that you use this church, that you build this church, that you grow this church, not for our name's sake, but for your name's sake. Lord, that you use our words, that you use the preaching of the gospel in this community to grow your kingdom. Through your power, through your spirit, oh Lord. We love you so very much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.